This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 155th edition of the program. Today is August 9th, and this episode is brought to you by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, and that includes Aaron Littman, Bruce Marmy, David Briggs, Frederick Johansson, Jason Borchers, Jason Counselor, Miko, Richard Jones, Rose Gomez, Sebastian Hesse, and Wendy Friedman. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support the Humanist Report podcast, you can do so by visiting humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, Joe Arpaio became Sasha Baron Cohen's latest victim on Showtime's Who is America? Tommy Laren demonstrates to all of us who the real snowflakes are, and it's not those of us on the left. A new Politico and Morning Consult poll on the 2020 election excludes Bernie Sanders and pretty much everyone except for Joe Biden. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai finally admits that the FCC, in fact, lied about a DDoS attack. Progressive congressional candidate Kaniala Ng's Democratic primary opponents were secretly co-opted by health industry lobbyists. We'll talk about that and also a new study from the Australian National University finds that we're on the cusp of passing a climate change threshold that will lead to a runaway global warming effect. Cynthia Nixon slams the Democratic Party's primary rigging and corporatism. And finally on the program, we'll talk about the outcome of the latest round of elections and discuss how progressives fared. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today. I hope you guys stick around and enjoy the program. Politico and Morning Consult recently teamed up for a poll that they conducted in late July with nearly 2,000 registered voters, and they found that former Vice President Joe Biden actually is outperforming Donald Trump in hypothetical 2020 matchups by seven percentage points. Now, what's the underlying implication when you see a headline like this? I mean, clearly, if Joe Biden is in the title, then obviously he must have performed better than other 2020 presidential contenders like Bernie Sanders, like Elizabeth Warren, and even Kirsten Gillibrand and Kamala Harris. Now, here's what Politico says about the specific poll. Former Vice President Joe Biden leads President Trump by seven percentage points in a head-to-head matchup, according to a new Politico morning consult poll. The percentage of Democrats who would choose Biden, 80% was slightly higher than the 78% of Republicans who would vote for the president's re-election. The former vice president who ran for the White House in 1988 and 2008 has been floated as a 2020 contender, and Biden himself has said he's not ruling out a third try. So the overall implication is that since Joe Biden performed so well, I mean, seven points, that's, that's a pretty good lead, right? Since he performed so well in a head-to-head matchup against Donald Trump, then clearly he's got to be the front runner, right? Because if he's the one who is front and center of this article, then he obviously must have outperformed individuals like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. However, there's something really peculiar about this poll 
that I found when I dived into the methodology and really looked at the questioning. This poll excludes Bernie Sanders. Excludes him. It excludes every other potential 2020 contender as well, including Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. And what's interesting is that if you look at the poll itself, you'll see that Joe Biden does, in fact, lead Donald Trump by a seven point margin. However, he actually performs worse than a nameless generic Democrat option who beats Trump by a 13 point margin, which implies that Biden isn't the best option to go against Donald Trump, even if they kind of made him the centerpiece of this particular article. But nonetheless, the title frames it as if Joe Biden is the front runner, when in actuality, that implication is wrong. Now, to be fair, the article does actually point this out. They state that he doesn't do as well as a generic nameless Democrat option. However, the problem is that we live in an age where people look at titles and they draw all the conclusions that they think they need from that title. They don't really dive into the details of articles. We all kind of do this. I'm guilty of this as well. So what's going to happen? Inevitably, the reason why we care about this is because individuals who are trying to shove Joe Biden down our throats, who are trying to make the case for Joe Biden, another corporate establishment Democrat, uh, they're going to share articles like this. Look, if you want to beat Donald Trump, Joe Biden is the man to go up against Donald Trump. But that poll doesn't say how well Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren would perform against Donald Trump. Furthermore, what's interesting is that the poll itself doesn't exclusively focus on 2020. It was kind of a general poll that gauged where the American people stood in general on several issues as well as their approval of Donald Trump and whatnot. So, I mean, the fact that the entire article was framed in a manner that implied Joe Biden was the front runner. I mean, look, this is this is something that I worry could be used to demoralize progressives in the same way that it did in 2016 when we saw things like, you know, the AP calling the race in certain states for Hillary Clinton before voters even casted all of their votes yet. I mean, if you see this and you're a voter and voting is already a chore and you have to bypass voter suppression laws in certain states uh, or voter ID laws and voter suppression in certain states, if voting is a chore and you don't think the candidate you support has a chance anyway, then what's going to be the conclusion for a lot of people? They're going to think, well, it doesn't matter. Bernie Sanders isn't going to win anyway, so why come out and vote for him? That's what I'm worried about, and I think that a large portion of the problem with uh, Bernie Sanders and really progressives in general was that they didn't think he had a chance, so they didn't bother to really support him. I mean, we saw this with Bill Maher, where somebody asked him a question in an overtime statement and said, look, if Bernie Sanders can win both Iowa and New Hampshire, does this mean that he actually has a chance against Hillary Clinton? And what was uh, what was Bill Maher's response? No. So people really respond to articles like this in a negative way, in a way that hurts progressives, because if they don't think someone like Bernie Sanders is going to win anyway, then odds are they're just not going to come out and support him. So look, if you honestly want to defeat Donald Trump and you're part of the establishment or you're part of, you know, a really large news outlet, you can't do things like this. I mean, sure, you can state the results of this poll, but don't make it seem as if 
Joe Biden is the individual to beat. It seems as if what they're trying to do is shove Joe Biden down our throats in the same way that they tried to shove Hillary Clinton down our throats. And that's completely unacceptable. You have to allow voters to make their choice. But as we've seen time and again, the Democratic Party doesn't want voters to make their choice. They want to make our choice for us and then tell us, Vote for who we've selected or, you know, you're you're a Donald Trump sympathizer. You're helping the Republicans. That's what they do. And it's a really sleazy, disingenuous tactic. So at the end of the day, we do have to be cautious. I would encourage individuals to look at these polls and dive into the methodology, dive into the details, look at the numbers, look at the sample size, look at the margin of error. And furthermore, another really important thing that I think we all need to kind of um, emphasize when we're looking at polls is that individual polls, I think that they're useful. They can give us some insight into where voters are at. But overall, I think that aggregate polling data is a lot more stable. So we should probably focus more on that and not put put too much stock into any individual poll, even though sometimes it's difficult, right? Because if you see a poll with the results that you like showing that Bernie is ahead, you know, that might get people excited. But really, we have we have to be overly cautious because we we know what the establishment did. We know what corporate media outlets did in 2016. And they're already showing us that they're planning on doing it again. And even if they're not doing this on purpose, maybe they're unwittingly framing this article in a way to demoralize progressives. Maybe they don't think that that will be a consequence of this, but when you have this poll that focuses on a lot of issues, they could have made the headline about Donald Trump and his approval rating or, you know, a generic Democrat, but they didn't do that. They decided to center this entire article on Joe Biden. And I think there's an underlying agenda there. I think there's a pro-corporate agenda, a pro-neoliberal agenda, and it's an agenda that is ultimately going to try to get us to accept whoever the establishment puts forward, and that's just not acceptable, and it wouldn't behoove the Democratic Party establishment to do that because it could backfire. I mean, we don't need to keep relitigating 2016, but these are important examples. We have to, we have to look to history so we don't have history repeating itself. So I just wanted to point this out because I thought that this was really, really a disingenuous article. In a speech at Netroots Nation in New Orleans, New York gubernatorial candidate Cynthia Nixon went after the Democratic Party establishment pretty hard. She not only called them out for tipping the scales in primaries across the country against progressives specifically, but she also called out their corporatism and reliance on large multinational corporations. And, I mean, she's really proving to us that she's the real deal. She's using her name recognition to spread this message that we've all been desperately trying to get across to the Democratic Party establishment. Take a look. The Democratic establishment doesn't like primaries. They think challenging incumbents hurts the party. I disagree. I think it helps the party. I think that centrist corporate Democrats hurt the party. And I think they need to be held accountable. And I think the primary is the most effective way to do that. 
We are witnessing an incredible moment for the progressive movement right now. People are rejecting the status quo and establishment Democrats and a party leadership that is so often whiter and wealthier and more male than the party base. And that is why thousands of progressives all over America are running for office this year. Many of us are women, many of us for the first time. Because we have realized if we want things to change, finally, we are going to have to step up and do it ourselves. And this movement that we are building around the country isn't just about the next election. It's about offering a vision of the way things could work. If only we had the leadership and the political courage to make that vision a reality. Because it can't just be business as usual anymore. We have to turn the system upside down. We have to uproot the broken establishment. And we have to usher in a new generation of leadership. We have to transform the Democratic Party into a vehicle, not just for corporations, not just for Wall Street, but a vehicle for all working people in this country. And I'm tired, I'm tired of a democratic establishment that meddles in primaries, that puts their thumb on the scale, that picks candidates based on nothing more than their ability to fundraise from big donors. I am tired of a democratic establishment that warns candidates not to run on single-payer health care, that tells us we have to stop talking about abolishing ICE because it doesn't poll well. This is the same democratic establishment that once upon a time told us not to talk about civil rights or same-sex marriage or abortion or a $15 minimum wage. This is the same democratic establishment that says we can't win with candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because she's too far to the left. I have to say to them, please, please. Maybe you have forgotten, but I haven't forgotten, and the people in this room haven't forgotten what happened in 2016. A lack of moderation was not the problem. We tried it their way, and we lost to a racist extremist. If Democrats are going to win this year, it is not enough to just be better than Donald Trump. We can't just give people something to vote against. We have to give them something that they want to show up and vote for. Now, I would love to toot my own horn here and say, look, she must be watching The Humanist Report because these are the same arguments I've been making all along, but odds are she just has common sense and sees the writing on the wall. Centrism isn't going to win. I want to go to her specific quotes here because I think she makes excellent points, points that obviously I've, uh, I've stated before. 
She says, a lack of moderation was not the problem. We tried it their way and we lost to a racist extremist. Look, that's exactly true. Now, last week on the show, I talked about Mitch Landrieu, who claimed that radical centrism really was the party's ticket to victory in 2018 and 2020. But again, nobody is excited for radical centrism because radical centrism, it doesn't have a meaningful effect on people's lives in practice. It doesn't. It makes elites feel good. Because they can endorse milquetoast policies and not offend their corporate donors. But in actuality, nobody's going to come out and try to thwart voter ID laws and voter suppression across the country and gerrymandering all to get nothing in return. If you want voters to pay the costs associated with voting, you've got to make sure you give them a damn good reason to get get out and vote for you. And centrists don't do that. Hillary Clinton didn't do that. And we just tried it two years ago, 2016, not that long ago. So the overall takeaway should be for every single individual who's rational, who thinks with their head and not their wallet, is that, okay, we tried centrism. We can never go back to that ideology. We have to embrace progressivism because clearly our base is leaving us and they're not... You know, our plan to win over Republicans clearly is not working at all. I mean, what idiot, honestly, who knows anything about politics would try to win over the center at a time when we have hyperpolarization in American politics? Now, she also criticized the Democratic Party establishment for, quote, putting their thumb on the scale. Um, And she said that they end up picking and favoring candidates based on nothing more than their ability to fundraise from big donors. And that's absolutely true. Again, see, the reason why we're not excited over candidates who take PAC money and money from large multinational corporations is because we know that they're not going to be looking out for us. Once you take that money, you become bought off. Once you accept help from health industry lobbyists and private prison lobbyists, they've got you. There's no turning back. Once they're in your ear, you're going to be listening to them more than you'll be listening to your own constituents. And even if it's the case that you take that money and you think at the time, I'm not going to sell out. I'm going to take this money now anyways, but when I get to Congress, I'm going to fight against them. No, that's not the way that this works. We've seen time and again that money leads to corruption. And as I usually do, I'll cite the 2014 Princeton University study by Dr. Gillens and Page. And what did they find? They found that our country effectively functions as an oligarchy. Well, when you look at policy outcomes preferred by normal Americans and juxtapose that with elites and business interests, you'll see that normal citizens have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes, whereas elites and special interests, they actually do have a huge influence on policy outcomes. Now, can you guess why that is? It's because they're they're bankrolling these candidates. They're making their electoral success more likely by funding them. And it's just human nature to want to look out for the people that looked out for you and helped you out. So, I mean, 
they have to get it through their thick skulls that we're not going to tolerate pro-corporate candidates that they want to shove down our throats. These individuals within the party, uh, the Democratic Party establishment, they're not dumb. I don't believe they're dumb at all. I think that they're just disingenuous and self-interested. And, you know, these strategists who are giving these Democrats the worst advice ever, they want to keep their jobs. So they'll keep telling them the same bad ideas and regurgitating these same, you know, strategies that have led to the party's defeat across the country i mean they lost over a thousand seats i know that progressives say this all the time but it's such a remarkable fact that we can't not emphasize it because it proves how awful the democratic party has become we essentially have two right-wing parties we have a center-right party and a far-right extremist proto-fascist party in this country and that's no longer acceptable we're standing up and we're saying that left-wingers need a party so I can't possibly cover everything that Cynthia Nixon said, since really everything she said was just so remarkable. But I do really want to commend her, and I'm I'm truly I'm truly hopeful that if anyone can pull off an upset in New York, it's going to be someone like her. I know that the polls don't look great, but at the same time, I mean the polls didn't look great for Alexandria Ocasio Cortez in 2016. Everybody thought that Donald Trump would lose and Hillary was ahead in the polls by you know a few digits but nonetheless she was ahead and Donald Trump still won so don't put too much stock into polls if you're in New York just get out and vote if you truly want someone who's going to represent you I think she's shown that she's the real deal she's not taking corporate money so we all know who she's going to represent the people so um, I'm just so thankful that there are so many progressives running. And um, I've said this before when talking with, you know, uh, congressional candidates. But back in 2016, I think that really you can count the number of progressives, really specifically progressive Berniecrats running on one hand, right? There was what, Tim Canova. There was uh, Alex Law. There was, uh, who was it? Olympia Snow, Zephyr Teacher. There wasn't very many. But now... I can't even keep track of how many progressives are running. And that's a really, really good problem to have. Because the fact that there are so many people running across the country, it really shows the power that progressives have um, and the influence that we have. And it's because our ideas are so popular that they're common sense, right? To not be in favor of Medicare for all when it will cost less than our current for-profit system. You can't not argue in favor of that unless you want to look like a disingenuous prick. So that's why so many people are running. And I'm just, I'm so thankful that people like Cynthia Nixon are finally speaking out and calling out the Democratic Party establishment because they've been in power. And that's been really bad for actual lefties because they've led the party off of a cliff and now it's time for them to step aside and allow the next generation of progressives to take over because we actually know what we're doing and we actually want to win whereas they don't lee fang and nick surhey of the intercept recently published a bombshell story that exposes several democratic primary opponents to progressive kaniala ing who are all vying to represent hawaii's first congressional district and how does it expose them specifically well it shows how they were specifically co-opted 
by the health insurance industry in Hawaii, and it is absolutely nauseating. So getting to the details here, Hawaii's first district seat, which was vacated by incumbent Democratic representative Colleen Hanabusa, who is running for governor, has attracted six serious candidates to the Democratic primary in this reliably blue district. According to documents obtained by The Intercept, at least three of the candidates took time out from their schedules to talk to a consultant dispatched by the Healthcare Leadership Council, a lobbying group that seeks to advance the goals of the largest players in the private healthcare industry. Now, the first district candidates working with the Healthcare Leadership Council, former state Senator Donna Mercado Kim, Hawaii Lieutenant Governor Doug Chin, and Honolulu City Council member Ernest Martin are taking heat from their opponents for talking to an industry-friendly group, even as public opinion is increasingly rallying to positions opposed by giant healthcare companies. Democrats running in a primary election will say they support Medicare for All, but what do they say to lobbyists behind the scenes, said Kanye Ng, a state lawmaker vying for the first district seat on a democratic socialist platform, warning of Democrats who make progressive promises when campaigning but work hand in hand with industries when in office. We need healthcare champions, not puppets. One of the leading candidates has campaigned on a promise to crack down on overpriced pharmaceuticals and promote single payer healthcare, but told the consultant dispatched by the Healthcare Leadership Council that he would maintain drug industry friendly pricing policies and views Medicare for All with skepticism. The council, which spends over $5 million a year on industry advocacy and brings together chief executives of major health corporations, represents an array of health industries including insurers, hospitals, drug makers, medical device manufacturers, pharmacies, health product distributors, and information technology companies. So, these are wolves in sheep's clothing. We have one individual saying explicitly that he supports Medicare for all, but behind closed doors, he's telling these healthcare lobbyists, I'm actually skeptical about Medicare for all. And furthermore, I would make sure that we don't do anything about over overpriced prescription drugs. What a disgusting, self-serving individual who is literally lying to people to get elected. I mean, if you know that you can't really make it through a Democratic primary without unequivocally endorsing Medicare for All. What are they doing? Instead of actually adopting that position and firmly believing it, they're not really going to fight for it. How despicable, how disgusting is that? This is why I always say you've got to follow the money, right? If somebody says that they support Medicare for All, you can't really believe them if they're taking money from pharmaceutical companies or health industry lobbyists because at the end of the day, they're always going to fight for the individual who helps get them elected or who they think helps them to get elected. And that's the individuals who are bankrolling their campaigns. So this is nothing more than co-optation. It's nothing more than corruption. And I'm really glad that there's someone in the race like Kanye Ng who has the guts to call them out because this is despicable. He called them puppets and he's absolutely right. They are nothing more than puppets. And this is something that we're going to have to become increasingly aware of because when you look at DNC chairman Tom Perez, he's clearly co-opted the language that progressives use when talking about issues like Medicare for all. When he talks about healthcare, he says, we believe as Democrats that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. But if you ask him, do you believe that healthcare should be free at the point of delivery? He dodges the question. So they're saying that they think healthcare is a right. Other Democrats who are corporate Democrats who are currently running for Congress are saying this as well. But in actuality, they just believe 
access to healthcare is a right. So since they they believe in access to healthcare, which I don't even know what that means, since they say that, I think that semantically they have enough wiggle room to where they can kind of say, well, look, since I think access to healthcare is a right, uh, it's a right. Healthcare is a right. You know, they make that logical jump when they don't have the credibility needed to make that logical jump. So th- when I saw this, I was I was honestly disturbed because individuals in this country currently who don't have health insurance, if they have a medical emergency, we all know what happens to them. They die or they go bankrupt. And these people who are running for Congress to represent their constituents are perfectly fine with people dying or going bankrupt or not being able to afford their uh, prescription drugs, all because they want to appease these rich health industry lobbyists and pharmaceutical companies who profit off of fucking us over, who profit off of ripping off Americans. I mean, it really doesn't get any more despicable than that. It doesn't. I would actually take this a step further and say that what they're doing here in lying to constituents, it's actually more disgusting than Republicans. They're worse than Republicans, right? Because at least Republicans tell us, I don't believe in expanding healthcare. In fact, we want to repeal Obamacare. So they want to fuck you over more, right? But they'll tell you that. These Democrats are saying, vote for me. I support Medicare for all. But behind closed doors, they're promising health industry lobbyists this particular lobbying firm who spends $5 million a year, that they're not with us. They're with them. It's absolutely despicable. Now, I do want to state that I actually interviewed Kalyana Ng last week, and he spoke out against this, and he explained how the Healthcare Leadership Council actually tried to reach out to him as well, but he was the only candidate principled enough to reject what they were trying to offer him, because it's, you know, it's really easy to become corrupted if winning requires you to take a large amount of money, from sometimes despicable characters, but he stayed principled and he rejected their money because he actually truly believes in Medicare for all. He believes that healthcare should be free at the point of delivery. And that's really, really important. Now, I wish I could show you the interview that I did with him, but unfortunately, there were some technical difficulties and I was not able to export that file out. Um, so I was so so disappointed because it was a fantastic interview and Kaniala Ng is actually one of the progressives that I'm the most excited for because when I talked to him we talked about really progressive issues canceling student loan debt we talked about universal basic income which he supports so I couldn't wait for you guys to see it and then of course you know it get it, it gets fucked up because um I it, it, when it comes to technical difficulties on the show I've had every single one of them possible lately so I was really disappointed but I still, like, the overall goal in interviewing people like Kaniala Ng is to let you know that these are very progressive candidates who want, need, and deserve your support, quite frankly. So, um, I'm not going to end this without making a pitch for Kaniala Ng. If you can support him, visit his website um, and do what you can to get the word out because this is someone who really is the real deal. If you want a true progressive that actually will fight for Medicare for all, you're not going to find a better ally than someone who rejected potentially thousands of dollars in support from health industry lobbyists. You're not going to get a better ally than that. He is truly principled. So I still do want to get the word out and I will leave you with this video, which is an ad produced by the people who made the great ad from Ocasio-Cortez, um, and this really shows what Kaniala Ng is all about, and I, I'm a true believer, so if you can, support him and enjoy. 
Every month, I pay 60% of my income just for rent and student loans. If you're making under $93,000 a year in Hawaii, then you're considered low income. When I was 11, my father passed away. I worked in the pineapple fields to help my mom pay the bills and later at Walmart and hotels to pay my own. Most of my classmates, my best friends, moved to the mainland, unable to afford life here in Hawaii. We're surrounded by military bases spending trillions of dollars waging for-profit wars. But we have an affordable housing crisis. Our children are moving away and healthcare is somehow a luxury. It's time for a new era of democratic leadership. My name is Kaniela Ng, and that's why I'm running for Congress. It's easy to blame Republicans, to blame Trump for our problems, but we have to look in the mirror. Who controls our state? Who's controlling our party? The people of Hawaii demand housing for all, Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, free college and student debt cancellation now. The majority of people in Hawaii and across the nation support these ideas, but big donors don't. I'm the only candidate in this race who isn't taking corporate money. As a kid, I remember my grandma telling me stories of my ancestors, how they preserved our environment and took care of each other. She told me how our people were exploited by colonizers and forced to work on plantations. The people of Hawaii have come together and risen up before, and we can do it again. If my great-grandparents didn't stand up to the corporate establishment of their time, I would still be on the plantation. It's time for us to stand up, not just to leave a better future for our children or grandchildren, but to live a better life ourselves. A Hawaii for the many is possible, but no one will give it to us. We have to take it together. Vote Kaniela Saito Ng on August 11th. So on the latest episode of Who is America featuring Sasha Baron Cohen on Showtime, the trend where he is able to dupe over some of the most craziest right-wingers the Republican Party is able to offer continues. Now, as you'll see, I think there may be a correlation between craziness and how easy they are to do because you got another crazy right-winger on this week. And that individual is former criminal sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, Joe Arpaio. And Sasha Baron Cohen got him to come on a fake YouTube-esque unboxing show for seemingly no good reason at all. I mean, I don't know why he agreed to this appearance, but nonetheless, he did. And they talked about various political issues while Cohen's character unboxed various toys. Now, Cohen began asking him more specific questions about Donald Trump since Arpaio knows him personally, since Donald Trump actually pardoned Joe Arpaio. And this was probably the most noteworthy portion of the entire segment in my opinion so do you think president trump he's your friend do you think he might have had a golden shower would surprise me oh i would love to have a golden shower do you think there's any way you could get president trump to give me a golden shower in finland or in america in washington well, in the White I, I, i'll tell you one thing uh if he sees this uh, and the way you're speaking, he's going to like you because you're, you think like he thinks. 
My first job was a hand job from my mother, and it was newspapers. What was your first hand job? So let me say this, me. Whatever I did in my life, I always did that extra. It gets me in trouble sometimes. You wanted to give the best hand job possible. Extra sometimes. Oh, so if Donald Trump calls you up after this and says, Sheriff Joe, I want to offer you an amazing blowjob, would you say yes? I may have to say yes. So um, since I showed you the clip, there's about a 99% chance that this video gets demonetized. But nonetheless, I still wanted to talk about it because I think that um, that was great. So look, I I don't think that there's much merit to the Trump golden shower theory. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, I thought it was hilarious how Sasha Baron Cohen got Joe Arpaio to agree to these really absurd things and he didn't pick up on the sexual innuendo and some additional comments here that stood out to me cohen said you wanted to give the best hand job possible and opio responded by saying extra sometimes now cohen said so if donald trump calls you up after this and says sheriff joe i want to offer you an amazing blowjob would you say yes and joe said i may have to say yes So now to give you some additional context, because I, I couldn't show you the full clip, it's it's relatively long, I'll link to it down below so you can watch it and get the full context. When when Sasha Baron Cohen's character was talking to Joe Arpaio about hand jobs and blow jobs, he primed him to think about these things in the context of actual jobs. But here's why I think Joe agreed to those things overall, even if Sasha Baron Cohen primed him to think of blow jobs and uh, <laughs> and hand jobs as career opportunities. I mean, it's because Joe Arpaio is 86 years old and he probably had absolutely no idea what a hand job or a blow job was. And in an interview with the Phoenix New Times, he kind of confirmed that this was in fact the case. He stated, I didn't even know what he was talking about, Arpaio explained. I couldn't even hear what the hell he was saying. He had a bad accent. He was twisting things around. I felt uncomfortable with some of the words they were using, but I had to live through it. I am not the type of guy who gets up and walks out. I never walked out in thousands of interviews. I just take it. He explained at the interview, which he told was being broadcast live to 2 million people. I was kind of shocked, he added, but I figured this is Finland and this is a famous comedian. So that's that's about what I expected. I, I think he just didn't know what that was. Um, you know, maybe he knew what a blowjob was, but since Sasha Baron Cohen brought up other jobs, you know, meaning career opportunities, maybe, again, he was just primed to not think of it in that way. However, what's interesting to me is that in his response to this, he tried to spin this as a positive for himself, saying that Sasha Baron Cohen did show one good thing. He showed how I support the president. So, <laughs> after, after you have... <laughs> After you have the proper context, Joe, and you know what he was referring to when he was talking about hand jobs and blow jobs, you don't want to spin this to make it seem as if it's a positive when you said that you would accept an amazing blow job from the president. You don't want to spin it. You just want to let go. You want to walk away. You want to take the L on this one, Joe, because 
There's absolutely no way you can spin this to make you not look like a naive idiot. Now, understand that if this was just any old person who he was duping into saying that he wants a hand job or a blowjob from the president, um, I would think it's cruel, right? But since this is Joe Arpaio, someone who is egregious, because Joe Arpaio is who he is, because he was found guilty for racial profiling, because he's just a disgusting individual, I don't feel bad about him being fooled by Sasha Baron Cohen or being made fun of by Sasha Baron Cohen, because these are individuals that they don't care at all about marginalized communities. They don't care about the suffering that their policies caused. They don't think about that. They just think, look, I'm anti-immigrant. I have an agenda and the means justify the ends. That's the way that they think. They think in absolutist terms, there's no nuance for individuals like Joe Arpaio. So I don't feel bad for him that he was duped by Sasha Baron Cohen and looked like an idiot. Again, if this was any other old person who Sasha Baron Cohen duped, I'd say, look, it's not that big of a deal because they clearly didn't know what you were talking about, but because it's Joe Arpaio, you know, I, I, I don't feel bad for him. So I am looking forward to seeing who Sasha Baron Cohen dupes next week. Although I will say this, I kind of like where he gets them to say crazy things. Like I think when he got Jason Spencer to do and say crazy things, that was more powerful. When he got the Republicans to read off of a teleprompter saying that they support arming kids, I think that that was more powerful, but I do acknowledge that it's probably more difficult to get individuals to do that because you've got to find someone who's really gullible and really stupid and naive to be able to do something like that. So I think that what we're probably going to see is him just kind of trolling politicians more frequently, like, you know, we saw with Roy Moore and now with Joe Arpaio, but either way, I'm fine with it. He's kind of exposing and making fun of the most egregious political figures in the country, and, and I'm okay with that. My only uh, hope is that he will allow us to put in requests. I'd like to see him make fun of people like Louis Gohmert and Steve King, who are just disgusting individuals. So as you all know, Tommy Lahren is a right-wing political commentator who popularized the term snowflake. Now, what a snowflake is, according to her, is essentially a caricature of someone on the left who's too easily offended, who's overly politically correct, and who basically goes above and beyond to make sure that their feelings are protected at all costs. Now, she used to make fun of snowflakes pretty frequently. It was, it was kind of what I think she was known for. So we're going to watch a Fox News clip where Tommy Lahren is brought on as a guest and they discuss an individual who's a public official who decided to protest the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, as you'll see in this clip, it's become pretty clear that Tommy Lahren has become the snowflake or at a minimum, the snowflake apologist that she once denounced. A Democrat by the name of Melissa Schlag took a knee during the Pledge of Allegiance. That was in July 16th. Well, last night they had another meeting. What happened? Let's take you back to Haddam, Connecticut. Uh, they were booing him. They got yelled at. Did you see the girl in the back? She came around the table to see if her right. colleague was going to. The cameras it. everywhere. They also had uh, veterans in the audience just scream at yeah. her to stand up, telling their personal stories and how offended they are. It doesn't seem to bother her. She's against the flag and the Pledge of Allegiance in particular. Well, in particular, she's against Donald Trump. Uh, we have some of the reaction from some of the people who were there last night. Let's play some of that. What are you thinking when you kneel down 
the sacred pledge of allegiance that what those people died for gives you the right to do that and disrespect them. I think it was great. I wholeheartedly respect your right to protest. If that's what you would like to do, do that on your own time. A lot of the folks in Haddam would like to see her resign. She has said she would not. Yeah, she, she has no plans to seek a higher office, she says. She has received harassment and threats uh, over her protest and calls for her right. resignation. So this is, is this about freedom or is this about disrespect? Tommy Lahren is a contributor, up early for us or out late, we're not sure. <laughs> uh, uh, Tommy, what's your reaction to the reaction? Now, the reaction I find heartening. Well, the citizens of that town really said it better than I ever could, and you could see their emotion, you could see their patriotism, which is something that I personally love to see. I think what she's doing is disrespectful. I think also we have to remember that just because she has the right doesn't make her right. And it also doesn't mean that she's going to be shielded from criticism. She's choosing to do this. She's choosing to disrespect the flag. Clearly, veterans in the crowd feel that she's disrespecting them, and she deserves to be called out for it. So, I mean, when you see that, it's clear that the right is being openly hypocritical. They're flaunting their hypocrisy now. I mean, listen to this quote from Brian Kilmeade. He said, they also had veterans in the audience just scream at her and stand up telling her their personal stories and how offended they are. It doesn't seem to bother her. She's against the flag and the Pledge of Allegiance in particular. Now, when you hear that quote, does that not sound like a prototypical snowflake that Tommy Lahren would denounce. I mean, if you remove this particular issue from the context and you apply someone being offended to any other issue, she would make fun of them and call them a snowflake. But in this instance, since in an issue that she's personally offended by, well, she didn't tell Brian Kilmeade that they were just being snowflakes or that he was being a snowflake. No, she actually uh, decided to agree with that sentiment. She said, I think what she's doing, meaning the public official, is disrespectful, and she said that since veterans felt disrespected, she deserved to be called out for it. Now, when liberals call out right-wingers, we're told that we're being too politically correct and oversensitive. But when they call out left-wingers for doing something that's politically incorrect, well, they're justified in doing that. It's a complete double standard, and they don't even care how hypocritical they look. Now, when I see people getting offended by her kneeling during the Pledge of Allegiance, my thoughts are, who gives a shit? Who cares? That doesn't affect me at all. It's symbolic. It's a protest. And one individual even said, well, look, if you want to protest, do that at home. But that's, that defeats the point of the protest. The point of protesting is to get your message across. And the reason why people tend to protest during the Pledge of Allegiance is because patriotism is a relatively touchy subject, especially for conservatives. And it's probably going to be a time when they're paying attention. Hence the reason why people tend to protest during the Pledge of Allegiance. But look, in this next clip that I'm going to show you, we kind of get to the crux of their outrage. And they ultimately chalk her protest up to a disrespect for veterans. And as I'm going to explain afterwards, what they're trying to do is change the conversation. So it's not about protest and it's about her 
hating veterans or disrespecting veterans. It's hard really to watch this, in my personal opinion. We've been watching all of the remains that are in caskets coming home to America. Families have been without their loved ones. They may be ultimate sacrifice. We had a guy on the show the other day who said he didn't see his dad after he was four years old because he was missing in action. And never, dad never came home doesn't have answers. So, I mean, when you when you hear these stories and then you see people kneeling for the flag, knowing what our servicemen and women have done for this country, I mean, to me, it's just it's just so sad. It's sad and it's really disheartening. I think you hit the nail on the head there because we have so many Americans that have fought and died for this country. And it just shows that there are some, usually on the Democratic side of the aisle, that their disdain for this president is greater than their love for this country. And I think we need to remember that whatever their issue is with this president, whatever their issue is with this administration or Republicans or Trump supporters, it shouldn't trump, if you will, their love of this country and their respect for those who have fought and died for this country. Why that has become something the Democrats have embraced is beyond me. I don't understand it. Why is patriotism not something that all Americans believe in? You can dislike this president and his administration. You can also use the other 23 hours and 58 minutes mm -hmm. in the day to show that disdain for this president and this administration. You don't have to use the anthem. You don't have to use the Pledge of Allegiance. So that to me was so disingenuous because clearly she was creating a straw man of her opponent's argument. She didn't care to figure out why this individual was actually protesting during the pledge, she just applied what she thought the protest was about, and she chalked it up to her disrespecting the troops, and she brought up the veterans that died, and she gave numerous examples of this, but what she was doing here was trying to change the conversation. Instead of making this about a protest of American policy, what she wanted to do was frame this as a protest specifically of the troops themselves, which is really the ultimate straw man. Now, that isn't what she said explicitly, but that was the underlying implication. That's the point that she was trying to get across, and the point that was probably well-received by Fox News' viewers. And here's something that may just blow their minds over at Fox News. What if I told you that you can protest and kneel during the Pledge of Allegiance because you actually support troops? I know, shocker, right? What if you're protest during the Pledge of Allegiance is specifically due to your aversion to war and U.S. imperialism, and you don't agree that we should keep sending American troops overseas to die in never-ending unnecessary wars for no good reason whatsoever. What if she was protesting in favor of the troops? That would be incredibly justifiable. And think about this. If you believe our veterans fought and died for our freedom, wouldn't the next logical assumption be that that freedom is also extended to our right to protest the flag? I mean, the logic doesn't even make sense by their own standards. It wouldn't make sense for a veteran to say, look, I went overseas, I fought for your freedom, but that freedom ends at your right to protest the flag. That's a freedom that I didn't fight for. I mean, their argument doesn't make sense. They don't have an argument, which is why they have to straw man and they have to try to tug on the heartstrings of their viewers in order to cultivate sympathy for their bullshit anti-freedom of speech position. And again, Tommy Lahren here, she implied, uh, you know, if they're going to protest the, pro the president, why do it during the anthem or the pledge? Because that's when people are paying attention. What's the point of doing a protest if nobody's going to be looking? The whole point of protest is to draw attention to a particular political issue. So why on earth would you do it at a time 
that's less likely to be viewed by other individuals. If you truly want people to hear your message or you want to have any sort of impact whatsoever, then you need to do it at a time when it's going to be most visible. And this this clip is evidence for that argument. So these are individuals who are completely hypocritical. They're more than willing to call out the left being too politically correct and overly sensitive but when they do it it's perfectly okay if we do it we're snowflakes we're too politically correct if they do it they're just being respectful to the flag and veterans it's a complete double standard and people like tommy laren should at least attempt to be at least a little bit more consistent with regard to her position on sensitivity and political correctness especially if She had this meteoric rise in politics because she made a name for herself making fun of people who are too politically correct and sensitive. But I mean, we live in a world where right-wingers can be as openly hypocritical as they want to, and um, that's that. There's a new study that recently came out that was conducted by researchers at Australian National University on climate change and this story absolutely shook me to my core because it really puts things in perspective with regard to climate change and how we need to get our act together really quickly if we want to survive as a species because we're basically on the cusp of passing a threshold that could catalyze a runaway global warming effect which i don't even have to tell you would be devastating So according to Max Greenwood of The Hill, a new study out Monday warns of the possibility of -of out-of-control global warming if humans fail to band together to fight the worst effects of climate change. The analysis, conducted by researchers at the Australian National University and the Stockholm Resilience Center, among other institutions, outlines the potential for a threshold that, if crossed, would lead to runaway warming patterns and the advent of a hothouse Earth. If such a threshold is crossed, the study warns, global average temperatures could climb as much as 8 degrees Fahrenheit above current temperatures and sea levels could rise 30 to 200 feet. Crossing the threshold would lead to a much higher global average temperature than any interglacial in the past 1.2 million years and to sea levels significantly higher than at any time in the Holocene, the study says. Even if every country that signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement meets its obligations under the pact and limits the global temperature increase to 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, runaway global warming could still be a threat, the newspaper reports. The study says that mitigating that risk would require collective global action, including a drastic transformation of social values and the pursuit of new technology. This is honestly like, I, I don't know if I have the words to express just how depressing this really is. The thought of a runaway warming effect on the planet. I mean, how many species are already going to go extinct? due to climate change but if there's a runaway effect where it gets hotter and hotter and hotter i mean what do we do the thought of climate change catalyzing wars for water in the middle east in north africa it's so terrifying we've gotten to this point as a society where we don't just put profits over people 
but we put profits over people and the planet. We don't care. The oligarchs who are currently in power don't really have to care about the consequences of climate change because, you know, let's face it, they're they're older, right? They've reached the ends of their lives and they're not going to see the consequences come to fruition in a way that will really affect them. Because, I mean, if you're not ignorant and you're paying attention, then you can see how climate change is already having an impact. We're already seeing the consequences. You know, we're we're seeing extreme weather patterns, hotter averages every single year. But since, you know, it's there's no really extreme consequences since, you know, parts of Florida aren't underwater yet, they can kind of turn a blind eye to it and also if you're if you're really wealthy you're kind of shielded from the consequences of you know these types of catastrophes that normal americans otherwise have to deal with so i honestly i don't i don't know that americans or really humans can come together to fight off the threat of climate change. I think there's going to be a point where, as a species, we're no longer going to be able to just brush it aside. We're all going to have to come together. But my worry is, when we all do come together, inevitably, I think, will that point be too late? And increasingly, the answer to that question is seemingly yes, it will be too late. So... I've kind of been an advocate for not just tackling climate change mitigation, but adaptation as well. Because if we're not talking about adaptation, then we're not really having, or if we're not including adaptation in our discussions about climate change, then I don't think we're having a fully constructive conversation because consequences will result from climate change. We're already seeing it. So we need to equip ourselves with the knowledge and capacity to adapt to what will inevitably cause mass chaos across the world but just nobody's priorities are in order and also individuals who care about climate change the, the working class they're so bogged down with low wages and working longer hours that it's difficult for people to even muster the energy to support it it just it's all going downhill right? That's kind of the sense that I got when I read this article. Shit's hitting the fan, everything's going downhill, and it looks as though the human species isn't going to be able to get its shit together. And look, we've there's been times when we've come together, when there was the hole in the ozone layer. We had the Montreal Protocol. Everyone came together. Now, part of that was because businesses decided to align their interests with that of individuals who are concerned, knowing that there would be regulation ultimately. But businesses nowadays, they're kind of not really willing to adapt quick enough. And furthermore, politicians who are beholden to the industries that pollute the most, well, what are they doing? They're not doing anything. They're still subsidizing big oil. We're not being honest with ourselves about the things that are increasing greenhouse gas emissions. And that includes factory farming. That includes a bevy of things that average Americans alone can't tackle, that we need government and world leaders to fight for us on. But it's just, I don't know. It's, um... It's really, it's a really scary time, right? You, this should be an exciting time for human beings. 
since we're, we're seeing all these technological advances and whatnot, we all have basically all the information available at our fingertips with cell phones. But then we had this looming threat of climate change, which is just, it's utterly horrifying. And I like to try to end these videos you know, with an overall takeaway, but I don't have an overall takeaway. I don't have the right words to describe what needs to be done. I don't have any motivational speeches to give. I've got nothing. I don't have anything. I'm out of um, ideas when it comes to trying to figure out how the fuck human beings are going to get ourselves out of this mess. I have no clue. I'm not smart enough to come up with any types of solutions. I don't know. As the article states, it's going to require global collective action but when when that ultimately happens might be too late so i don't i don't know what to say this is just it's awful FCC Chairman Ajit Pai is finally forced to admit what was obvious to every single person in America with the exception of himself that there was never a DDoS attack on the FCC that was a claim that they made up in order to cover their asses. Now, before I talk about the new article where he admits that the FCC essentially lied, let me get you all caught up. So as you'll recall, back in 2017, the FCC comment system was overwhelmed when John Oliver instructed his viewers to file pro-net neutrality comments on the FCC's website. Now, since the surge in traffic ultimately slowed down the FCC's website to the point that it became inoperable for a number of hours, well, rather than working to try and fix the problem quickly so viewers could submit comments, the FCC just did nothing, and they chalked it up to a DDoS attack in order to cover their asses. And they even threw the previous FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler, under a bus and claimed that he actually withheld evidence of a different DDoS attack that occurred in 2014, and they threw him under a bus and made up a second DDoS attack in order to make the current claim that a DDoS attack occurred in 2017 seem a bit more credible. And now, even though it was bullshit, the evidence has become so overwhelming that this is an untenable position. They have to admit that there was never a DDoS attack. So according to Eris Foley of The Hill, the Federal Communications Commission on Monday said that a cyber attack on its comment system that it claimed had taken place last year never actually happened. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai issued a statement regarding the Office of Inspector General's independent investigation into the alleged incident last year involving the agency's electronic comment filing system. For several months, my office has been aware of and cooperating with the Office of Inspector General's independent investigation into the incident involving the FCC's ECFS that took place on May 7th through 8th of 2017, Pai said in the statement. The Inspector General's office asked my office not to discuss this investigation while it was ongoing so as to not jeopardize it, and my office has accommodated that request. Pai said in the statement he was deeply disappointed that the FCC's former chief information officer, whom he pointed out was hired by the prior administration and is no longer with the agency. Pai said the former CIO provided inaccurate information about this incident to me, my office, Congress, and the American people. I'm also disappointed that some working under the former CIO apparently either disagreed with the information that he was presenting or had questions about it, yet he didn't feel comfortable communicating their concerns to me or my office, Pi continued. So, Pi's response here, 
is particularly interesting to me or really outrageous to me <laughs> to be clear for a couple of reasons first of all he is trying to deflect and throw someone else under the bus for an agency that he leads no 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 if you're if you're the head of this agency you take responsibility for it you don't get to throw the last administration under a bus so that's kind of the first thing it's it's a it's a sleazy tactic that anyone could have predicted that a gpi would do if he was caught now, the second reason why this is so ridiculous is because the individual who he's throwing under a bus, the former CIO of the FCC, is an individual named David Bray, who actually is an ally of Ajit Pai. Bray actually lied about there being another DDoS attack in 2014 in order to protect Ajit Pai and make it seem like this 2017 attack was more valid since it's kind of a common occurrence for the FCC. But now that Ajit Pai himself may be in hot water, what does he do? He throws his own friend under a bus in order to cover his own ass. <laughs> I would have expected Ajit Pai to maybe go a little bit further to defend someone who was covering his ass, but instead just takes him, pushes him right in front of a train. Now, I'm glad that he's admitting that, um, you know, the, the DDoS attack was essentially bullshit. It shouldn't have taken this long, though. Now, he states that he, he didn't want to you know, hurt the the um, the ongoing investigation by the FCC Inspector General, which is why he hasn't commented. But look, the FCC Inspector General's investigation, it wasn't launched until February, as far as we all know. Now, it was obvious to all of us with a brain long before the FCC Inspector General's independent investigation that this was complete bullshit. It was a made-up claim in order to cover their own asses. So it's funny that he's using this as an excuse to cover his ass when we already knew the truth all along because it was clear that when you when you have a system that is flooded with comments it wasn't a ddos attack it was just a lot of people going to the website that was fucking obvious but because he didn't want those individuals filing pro net neutrality comments what did he do he probably instructed individuals within the fcc to just kind of back off you know don't fix it right away. Let them not be able to post their comments, and then we'll just we'll claim it was a DDoS attack, and that should help us cover our asses if anybody asks any questions as to why we weren't trying to allow for people to have their voices heard. I mean, it's despicable. Anything that he does is always at the behest of internet service providers. He is in bed with the large multi-billion dollar companies that he's supposed to be regulating. I mean, this guy is as corrupt and sleazy as it gets in American politics. I mean, Donald Trump talked about draining the swamp when he was elected, and this guy is the swamp. He's the swampiest swamp monster imaginable currently in Washington, D.C. I think that since Scott Pruitt resigned, it's clear that Ajit Pai is officially the most corrupt individual in Washington. That's clear. Direct collusion between him and internet service providers. Numerous instances of this occurring, you know, everything from him speaking at Verizon's headquarters a week before he repeals net neutrality, to him laughing with telecom lobbyists about he's a shill for the industry and how the industry has infiltrated the FCC. I mean, this guy... He's a joke. He's as corrupt as they get. So I'm glad that little by little, 
you know, um, he's becoming exposed, but it's not enough, I think, to get him impeached, even though I believe if lawmakers wanted to impeach him, they probably have more than enough to do it, but according to them, since they haven't acted, you know, it's not enough to impeach him. I wish that they would take action, because this is someone who is very corrupt, and I have no doubt that someone who is maybe equally corrupt will take his place, like Mike O'Reilly, who's an FCC commissioner, but the point is that individuals in power don't get shielded from consequences when they commit crimes. Since he's been overtly corrupt, I think it's only reasonable that we talk about impeachment, and it's just not happening, which is a little bit frustrating, but I am happy that Democrats are on the correct side of this issue. Um, but, I mean, at the end of the day, he's still winning. Net neutrality is repealed, and it's most likely going to be the case that the House will not vote to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality because there's just not enough votes. So it's it's really frustrating, and little by little, I am losing hope when it comes to net neutrality because as time goes on, it's going to get a lot more difficult for us to win back net neutrality. So hopefully states will take action and we've all got to continue doing what we can to exert pressure on lawmakers. Well, as you all know, there's been a ton of different Democratic primaries that have taken place across the country in numerous states. And as you can see here, I've got multiple Justice Democrats who had races today, some pretty big names in uh, progressive politics right now. And I don't have the results for every single race just yet, but we have enough to at least gauge whether or not tonight was a success or not. And overall, with the preliminary results that we have, even though some are still um, coming in, it was a pretty bad night, admittedly so. Um, that's not to say that there weren't some victories here and there, but for the most part, there were some pretty big blows. So, because I like to end things on a positive note, let's start with the bad news first. So first of all, when it comes to Michigan's gubernatorial race, with 79.6% of precincts reporting, Gretchen Whitmer, the corporate Democrat, defeated Abdul El-Sayed, and she received 51.9% of the vote to his 31.5%, and Sri Thanadar, which is basically just the lying fake progressive, came in third with 16.6% of the vote. Now, this is very disappointing. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez, they came out to stump for. Abdul El-Sayed, he was a staunch progressive, and he was within striking distance, according to polls. I think he was just seven points behind, and he ended up losing by about a 20-point margin. So, this one is really the biggest defeat because if he would have pulled off an upset here, it would have been huge. It would have been another Ocasio-Cortez situation and would have made national headlines. And um, needless to say, I'm, I'm pretty disappointed with the outcome here. People in Michigan, they could have had someone who genuinely cared about representing them, who would have fought for state-run Medicare for all, but instead, they opted for someone who was backed by the establishment who takes corporate money. Um, so that's that's really, really disappointing. Abdul Al-Sayed was one of the best progressives, um, and he lost. So I know that this won't be the last that we see of him, but this is, this is a gut punch. Let's be real. This is really tough. Now, when it comes to the race... With Cori Bush, another Justice Democrat, I've had her on the program, and this is in Missouri's first congressional district. 
with 92% reporting, Lacey Clay has defeated her 57.1% to 36.3%. Now, Ocasio-Cortez did a lot to give her a boost towards the end of her campaign. As soon as Ocasio-Cortez won, she was stumping for Cori Bush. So it seemed more likely that Cori Bush could have pulled off an upset. And Lacey Clay is someone who is a corporate Democrat. And he has been attacking Ocasio-Cortez because she had the audacity to endorse Cori Bush. So the fact that that one was another loss for us, that one hurt because I was really watching Cori Bush. There's something really special about her. And she really is a progressive leader. Um, and to have her lose, again, really disappointing. So let's move on. Getting to Washington State. Now, um, a little bit of context. Washington State has jungle primaries. It's kind of like uh, California's primary system where the top two vote getters in either party heads to a runoff. So you could have two Democrats, you could have two Republicans, you could have a Democrat and a Republican. So all that progressive Democrats in this state needed to do was come in second and they would advance to the general election in November. So there were three progressive Democrats running. There were Sarah Smith, Dorothy Gasquet, and Tambourine Borelli. So when it comes to Tambourine Borelli, she was running as an independent against Denny Heck, and she was challenging him because, one, he's a corporate Democrat, and two, he refused to actually represent his constituents and won't even co-sponsor H.R. 676, the Medicare for All bill. So in that race, District 10 of Washington, with 69% of precincts reporting, Denny Heck comes in first with 59.7%, and Republican Joseph Rumbles came in second with 31.4%, although Tambourine Borelli, she did come in third with 4.6% of the vote, which is actually pretty high, uh, considering she decided to run outside of the Democratic Party, which is really bold of her. It's um, it's certainly brave, and I commend her for it, but she ran a fantastic campaign. Again, another phenomenal progressive that I hope to hear more from. Um, and when it comes to Dorothy Gasquet, with 100% of precincts reporting, she unfortunately did not make it to the runoff. She came in fifth place with 4% of the vote, which is another gut punch. So I, I know I said that there's some good news. We'll get to it, but uh, it's a tough night so far. Now, there's a teeny tiny shred of hope in Washington's ninth district with Sarah Smith. Now, by the time you see this, that may change. Either all hope is lost or um, <laughs> we're still hanging on. But with 62% of precincts reporting, Adam Smith, her corporate Democrat opponent, is currently in first with 50.3% of the vote. And Republican Doug Bazer is currently in second with 26.6%. And Sarah Smith is in a close third with 23.2% of the vote. So she's so, so close. And if she can hang on, she could advance to the runoff and then still continue to challenge Adam Smith. But it's it's currently not looking good. Um, and she, again, one of the best progressives running. So uh, this, this is really difficult. So Sarah Smith is, I just had her on the show again. She's been on my program three times. I believe in her. Um, so to see that she has not likely advanced, that's a tough pill to swallow. Now, getting to the little last bit of bad news, I guess you can say. Um, so, there was a special election in Ohio's 12th congressional district between Republican Troy Balderson and Danny O'Connor. 
Now, I was not paying attention to this race because I didn't have much hope. I knew it would probably be close from what I gathered from the race, but Danny O'Connor is a really, really shitty candidate. Let me just be frank. He's horrible. He's a corporate Democrat. He's against Medicare for all. And one of his priorities, if you check his website, is to basically work with Republicans. He wants to, quote, find common ground with Republicans. I will work with congressional Republicans. I'll work with President Trump. I'll work with congressional Democrats if folks will sit down and be serious and commit to rebuilding this country so that people who are ready to go to work have the opportunity to do that. We have a chance to send a message, not about partisanship, but about pragmatism. That's what's at stake. I'm Danny O'Connor, and I approve this message. And with 100% of precincts reporting, even if he was a shitty candidate, he did pretty well even though he ultimately lost. He was narrowly defeated by Republican Troy Balderson, and this race was so close that Troy Balderson only had 1,754 more votes. Uh, But as you can see there, there's a Green Party candidate who got 1,100 votes, and if you check Twitter, he's already being blamed as a spoiler, even though the math doesn't add up, but I think it's clear that Danny was just a pretty shitty milquetoast candidate. Um, I think this is another one of those instances where the Democrat didn't excite voters and just a little bit more excitement. And uh, he could have pulled it off, but he was he was a shitty candidate, awful candidate. So um, that's not surprising, but you know it's it's still bad news nonetheless because I'll take a corporate Democrat over a Republican, but I'm not going to be excited or enthusiastic even a little bit. So. Now that we have all the horrible, horrible bad news out of the way, um, there is some good news. There's some pretty big wins to hang on to. So when it comes to the state of Missouri, they actually became the first state in the country to vote to repeal an anti-union right-to-work law. This is fantastic news. When you put the policies up for a vote, or you go issue by issue, by and large, voters are progressive. And this kind of, it proves our point even further. So great news there. Now, when it comes to candidates, so James Thompson running in the 4th Congressional District of Kansas with 100% of precincts reporting, he actually defeated Laura Lombard in a landslide victory, 65.3% to 34.7%. Now, he ran before as a progressive. I was very enthusiastic about his campaign. Uh, He ran again, got the backing of Bernie Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez, Justice Democrats, brand new Congress, and he pulled it off. This is great news. This is a very strong firebrand progressive. So take this win. This is important. Another win in the 3rd Congressional District of Kansas with 21% of precincts reporting. It's still early, but Brent Welder is leading Sharice Davids by 6 points. So uh, this is good news. Again, I'm not... This is... (laughs) With 21% of precincts reporting, we do have to be cautiously optimistic, but for the most part, looks like he's going to pull through here. Now, a surprise upset in the state of Michigan in Congressional District 13, which is a special election to fill John Conyers' seat, with 85% of precincts reporting, Justice Democrat Rashida Tlaib 
is currently leading. So we don't know for sure if she's going to pull this off, but it's very, very likely that she is on the path to an upset. So by and large, we lost a lot of progressives, but at the same time, not all is lost. There's some good news. Um, certainly wasn't as good a, of a night as the uh, June 26th primary was, of course, when we had um, Emily Sirota, Ben Jealous, Ocasio-Cortez all win, but at the same time, it was still, you know, we had some good wins tonight, right? But we lost a lot of good progressives. And I let me just say this, to all of these progressives, they ran phenomenal campaigns. And I also want to extend another thank you to not just them, but all of their volunteers, because we talk about how wonderful these candidates are, and really they wouldn't attract volunteers if they weren't such outstanding candidates, but their volunteers are working tirelessly for all of us. They're knocking on doors every single day. They're phone banking every single day, and we don't even know their names to thank them. So to all of the volunteers of Sarah Smith, Dorothy Gasquet, Abdul El Sayed, uh, Corey Bush, anyone else, you all make progressive victories possible, and you should really be proud. Hold your head up high. Don't think that you did anything to um, to lose or that you didn't work hard enough. Understand that every single race with the progressive who's not taking corporate money is going to be an uphill battle because nine times out of ten, big money is going to win. It's going to prevail, and the progressive will lose, but at the same time, you guys ran amazing, amazing campaigns, and do not ever doubt for a second that you didn't work hard enough or that we all think you didn't do enough because you guys were excellent. It just, it didn't pan out for us this time, but we can try again. And like James Thompson, maybe the second time around you could prevail. So look, let me just say this now to the candidates. You all are so inspirational and amazing. Don't go away. Uh, keep talking, keep being leaders in the progressive movement because we need your voice. It's crucial. We need more progressive leaders. And I think that you all are excellent. So I hope to see more of you guys. So look, let's not try to be do too down on ourselves. This this does suck um, <laughs> overall. But at the same time, really hang on to those wins that we got tonight. The three wins or actually four if you count the ballot initiative in Missouri. Because look, these, these are important. We can't get demoralized. You know, um, we got to think of the long game here. So... I'm not going to lie, you know, it's tonight felt like a gut punch, but I'm not going to stop, never going to stop, that shouldn't surprise anyone, so we'll just keep going, and um, yeah, hopefully the um, there's another primary coming up on the 11th of August with Kaniala Ng, hopefully we get a win there, so, you know, we'll see, and we'll be watching closely either way, um, fantastic campaigns, these, these progressives are absolutely inspirational and i truly truly look up to them well that's all that i've got for you guys today thank you all so much for tuning in and a special shout out to all of our patreon and paypal contributors if you'd also like to support the program you could visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report thank you all so much uh hopefully you enjoyed the episode i will see you all next week take care